0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. Luke chapter 10, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter Well, a ton of love to all of you and a warm welcome. Last week, we kicked off a new practice on eating and drinking, or what one writer calls radically ordinary hospitality. I love that. If you were not here, please go back and listen to the podcast. We kind of laid all the groundwork, so you really need to make sure you're in on that conversation. And now we are ready to move on. Holy Spirit, come I can't remember a time in my three decades when we were this divided as a nation. Progressive and conservative, Democrat and Republican, black and white, LGBTQ and straight, urban and rural, rich and poor, West Coast and East Coast, and on down the list. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus, from his life and his teachings, to engender healing for our polarized and angry and over-the-top anxious society. A practice to tear down the wall between us and them, what the writers of the New Testament call the wall of hostility between our enemy and to turn our enemy into our friend and our stranger into our brother or our sister. The answer is, of course, yes. On that note, take a look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion... An expert in the Torah stood up to test Jesus. (laughs) Never a good idea. (laughs) Rabbi, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, he's not actually asking a question. This is a test, all right? Does Jesus pass the test or not? Does he have the right theology, all of that? Well, what is written in the Torah? He replied, how do you read it? In today's language, what does the Bible say and what's your interpretation of it? He answered with a quote from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. That was called the great Shema at the time for the first Hebrew word in that prayer. And Orthodox Jews to this day pray it not once but three times a day. Well, then he quotes from Leviticus 19. Secondly, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Love God with every square inch of your being and love your neighbor, the person to your right and to your left, as yourself, and you will experience life and life to the full, all that God has for you. And if only that was the end of the story. But, 29, he wanted to justify himself. Anybody ever feel that way? So, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, notice the motivation behind the question is he's on the hunt for an out, right? So he's not actually, again, he's not actually asking Jesus a question. He wanted, we read, to justify himself. So he wants to check off the to-do list, the religious to-do list, and say, I'm done, I'm out, I've done my good deed for the week. Jesus in reply said, now notice what comes next remember as we read through it is Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Keep that in the back of your mind. A man was going down from Jerusalem. You got to love Jesus. You ask him a straightforward question and he starts into a story as always. (laughs) Going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 18 miles and it's a steep drop, about 3,500 feet in elevation change. Jerusalem's up in the hills. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea, below sea level, right? 3,500 feet, drop, it's zigzag, sharp twists and turns and it was dangerous. In fact, by Jesus' time, it had earned the nickname, the way of blood because it was a hot spot for thievery. This story, all that to say, is not only plausible. A lot of scholars speculate that this isn't actually a parable. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of scholars speculate this was actually a well-known true story from the day. It's about racial justice. We'll get there in a minute. And in the same way that we tell stories about MLK and the bombing or the letter or the march on Selma or whatever it is, Jesus here is telling a story of racial justice from his day and age. Either way, the story goes on. 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, that's another religious professional, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. I was reading this story to my kids a few nights ago, and my nine-year-old Moses at this point said, wait, dad, isn't he supposed to be the good guy? Exactly. If you're reading this story for the first time, here comes the priest, great, to save the day. A man is in need on the side of the road, and the priest just goes to the other side, and mind your own business, goes on. Well then here comes the Levite, okay, and then the exact same thing happens. Now it's really easy for you and me, two millennia later on the other side of the world, to look down our nose at the priest and the Levite, but a little bit of backstory. So the priests and the Levites worked at the temple in Jerusalem, but most of them lived 18 miles away in Jericho. And they worked on a two-week rotation, and then they came home with their pay for, all, for two weeks of work, and the pay was not in the form of, you know, a number in an online bank account or in the form of cash, currency from the temple. You were paid in the tithes and offerings of people at the temple. Currency was in the form of an animal or in a grain offering. It was in the form of food. Now, if you've ever read the Torah, and if you want to just nerd out, go read Leviticus 21 through 23 on your own time, all right? But there are all sorts of laws about food sanitation, what we call the kosher diet now. And long story short, if any of your food came into contact with somebody or something that was, quote, unclean, such as a man bleeding out on the side of the road, all of that food had to be thrown out. So just imagine you're the priest, you're the Levite. You just got off a two-week-long shift. You are dead tired. You're en route home. You're on a dangerous road. Like, you just want to get through as fast as you possibly can. There's yet another victim on the side of the road. He's as good as dead anyway. If you stop to help, the odds are that your food for your family, not just your money to, like, go have fun, but your food, right, for your children, for your wife, for your family, for your tribe, is all at that point forfeit. So what he does, of course it's wrong, but you can imagine you would at least feel the gravitational pull to just didn't see it, didn't see it, didn't see it, eyes in front of right? Go on in front of you. Now, Jesus goes on with the story, 33, but a Samaritan, that's another ethnic group from up in the north, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which were very expensive. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's quite a good chunk of money, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, this is a twist in the story. Again, if you've read this, most of you know this story. Even if you've never been in church once before, you kind of know the gist of the story. You are at a disadvantage. We think of it, oh, here comes Mr. Nice Guy, come to practice random acts of kindness or whatever. This is a twist in the story. If you were a first century Jew and you were hearing this story for the first time, the second Jesus said to Samaritan, your jaw would drop for a few reasons. One, there was a trifecta of religious professionals at the temple that was common language from the day. There was the priest at the top, then the Levite, and then below that was the Jewish layperson, right? And there was a social hierarchy too. The priest was at the top, made the most money. The Jewish layperson was at the bottom and was for the most part poor. Now, if you hear a story about a priest and then you hear about a Levite, who are you expecting to come next and save the day? the Jewish layperson, right? And that makes sense. Jesus is ever the champion of the poor, right? The little guy. And so you're thinking, oh, that's classic Jesus, right? Don't make the priest the hero. Don't even make the lead. Don't even make the middle class the hero. No, make the Jewish layperson, the average Joe, like make him the hero of the story. That's who you're expecting. And who shows up instead? It's not a trick question. Who shows up instead? The Samaritan. Now, Samaritan. This is not even a Jew. It's a whole other ethnic group. It's from up in the north. A little bit of backstory to get your head around it. There was a long-standing racial tension that was centuries old between the Samaritans in the north and the Jews in the south. In the 7th century BC, here's the short version. If you know your Bible, if you read Chronicles in the Old Testament, when the 10 tribes, 12 tribes in Israel, right? When the 10 tribes in the north were dragged away into exile by Assyria... A few people were left in the north and the Assyrians imported in Assyrian women to intermarry with the survivors who were left. The survivors did exactly that and their descendants were known as the Samaritans, half Jew and half Assyrian. Now remember, the Assyrian is the oppressor, okay? Now then a few hundred years later, when the two tribes in the south were dragged away in exile in Babylon, they refused to intermarry. Even the survivors who were left refused. They said, no line in the sand. How do you think they felt about their cousins in the north, their brothers and sisters in the north who intermarried? Not well at all. So, hundreds of years later, you had on and off again warfare between the two, acts of terrorism. Jews saw Samaritans as half breeds and heretics. And Samaritans saw Jews as racist and cruel. These two ethnic groups hated each other. And who does Jesus make the hero in a story for Jewish people? Yeah, a Samaritan, the enemy, the other. Which is why, notice the next line, 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Remember, all of this is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? To the man who fell into the hands of robbers, The expert in the Torah replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even say the man's name. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That's too far. The one, I imagine him like with gritted teeth. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, you go and be like him or go and do likewise. Now there are two things Jesus does here that I wanna point out to you. One is more obvious. Jesus universalizes neighbor. For Jesus, your neighbor isn't just the person in the house or apartment or room next door it's anybody and it's everybody the semantic domain is so wide it's all the way to your enemy to the person whose name you can't say to the person when his or her name comes up in conversation you are immediately racked by anger or anxiety or whatever emotion there's no opt out there's no fine print, there's no clause to get you out of love for anybody. Everybody is your neighbor. Everybody is the object of the Father's love, and you are a conduit for the Father's love. And that doesn't mean warm, fuzzy emotions. That means to will the good of another ahead of your own, even if it comes at grace cost to yourself. That is the definition of love through the New Testament love your neighbor. Now, most of us get that. We're familiar enough with Jesus of Nazareth, we get that. But the danger here, Jesus doesn't just universalize neighbor, because the danger with that is if you universalize it too much, if you make your neighbor into everybody, then it's nobody, right? So it's really easy to read this with this kind of vague Portland-esque, we read love your neighbor, and I think honestly what a lot of us think is like Be nice and tolerant and tip well when you have extra cash. That's what Jesus is getting at here. All of that is fantastic. I don't know how Jesus would tip. I'd I'd just turn, you know, coffee into a tip. I don't know what he would do. Um, But I think that what he's getting at here is far more radical than, hey, be nice to everybody out on the street. Jesus universalizes neighbor, but he also particularizes neighbor. For Jesus, your neighbor is literally the person you walk by on your morning commute. It's the person to your right or to your left in your neighborhood. Most of us read, love your neighbor as yourself, and skip over the literal meaning, as in your neighbor neighbor, and jump right to the metaphoric meaning. Right Whoever the Samaritan is in your life, that nasty coworker, or the ISIS terrorist, or whatever hypothetical scenario. Here's a crazy thought experiment for you. What if when Jesus said, "Love your neighbor as yourself," he meant your actual neighbor? What if your neighbor is more than your actual neighbor, but it's not less? What if first century Jews needed to hear, hey, your neighbor isn't just the person next door to you, it's the Samaritan, it's your enemy. What if 21st century followers of Jesus need to hear, your neighbor isn't just him or her out there, it's your neighbor neighbor. The person in the apartment next to you, the condo next to you, across the hall in your dorm, right? Across the street in your neighborhood. Right now, just imagine in your mind's eye, whoever lives to your right, whoever lives to your left, and whoever lives across the street or the hallway from you. Just bring that man or woman or family or student to mind. If you have no idea who they are, then just feel guilt and shame. That's fine. No, I'm kidding. Then then that's a great starting point for you. Just imagine. You have a face? That was a joke. Come on. You, you You have a face? Your neighbor to your right, to your left, across the street or the hall from you. What if when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, the primary meaning was go love those three people the way that you love yourself. The secondary meaning was love your enemy, love that difficult coworker, love the terrorist on the other side of the ocean. Great, All, it's more than that, but it's not less. This makes sense of what Luke does next in the story. Take a look at verse 38. And remember, um, in my English translation of the Bible, there's a paragraph break between 37 and 38. There's even a subheading, quote, at the home of Mary and Martha. None of that is in the original text, right? It's just from one story to the next, from one sentence to the next, 38. As Jesus and his apprentices were on their way or road, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. And the story goes on. Most of you know that story. If not, it's a great one. Read it again on your own time. All I want you to see tonight is the Luke's literary link. So Jesus tells a story. Just pay close attention. He tells a story about a traveler on a road. Hadas is the word in Greek. A road or a way who is in need who experiences a tangible act of love from host? The word hospitality is not used, but that's exactly what it is. Then very next line, Jesus goes on his road, his way. And now Jesus is the one in need, and then Jesus experiences a tangible act of love Again, the word hospitality is not used, but it's exactly that of hospitality from Mary and Martha who are the living embodiment of what Jesus just said. Because after you make a Samaritan a hero, make two women the heroes in the story. Again, Jesus just wants to upset as many nasty people as he possibly can. You have to love Jesus. You see what he's up to, it's so good. Luke, pay close attention. Luke ties together three elements. Love your neighbor as yourself, the second most important command in all of the Bible the person right in front of you in your day-to-day life and hospitality. We read that Martha, quote, opened up her home to him. That is the definition of hospitality. Now, this gets me thinking. What if we were to recapture our home, or condo, or apartment, or whatever, basement, as an outpost for the kingdom of God in our neighborhood? and the table as a tangible expression of love and service for our neighbor. For a lot of us, our home is a retreat. It's a place to hide from the world, to eat, drink, binge watch Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, goof off on social media, sleep, relax, be with your family, your friends, whatever it is that you do with your time. I think, in my experience, the typical follower of Jesus doesn't think about their home all that differently from how the typical non-Christian thinks about their home. It's still the same thing. It's a place of retreat. A lot of us get this uh, missionary, for lack of a better word, call of Jesus to our city to go out, make disciples, pray, work, bleed for the kingdom of God to come in Portland as it is in heaven. Most of us get that and say yes and amen, but most of us also think that is something that happens outside our home, not in and through our home. A man's home is his castle, as the saying goes. I was just in Ireland, castles have walls and a moat and a portcullis all designed to kill you (laughs) if they don't want you in. What if we were to see our homes not as castles to retreat from the world, but as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? What if we were to reimagine and re-envision our tables not as a block of wood or metal to eat, take out grasa on as we binge watch TV, but again, as an open door, as an opportunity to show the love of the Father to those that are not yet his sons and his daughters. What if we, like the Samaritan, like Mary, like Martha, like the heroes in the story, were to see those in need around us, to see Jesus in those in need all around us. So there might not be people on our morning commute who are bleeding out on the side of the road at least not physically, but what about emotionally or relationally or spiritually? There are suffering people all over. If you could see your neighborhood, if I could see my neighborhood from God's vantage point, his kind of bird's eye view with x-ray vision into each home, each apartment, I guarantee that we would see hundreds or thousands of people hiding in their room, in their apartment, in their home who are lonely and hurting and desperate for the love of the father and the family. T and I, um, who's home now after last hour, but have come to realize over the last few years in particular, just living in the city, we live not far from here at all, we've come to realize just how lonely and alienated people are. People who have their, I'm not talking like about the, oh, you feel bad, people who have their act together who make money, who are in a career, working for Nike, doing whatever it is, and yet behind the scenes are lonely and alienated. The sexual liberation, and I say that with a ton of sarcasm, of the 1960s has wreaked havoc on our society. We are now the first adult generation that is the byproduct of widespread divorce. 64% of our church is from a divorced family. And we know that the PR, the relentless PR campaign of progressive culture to recast the breakdown of the family as progress to some utopian future is a farce. It is a sham, it is a cop-out, it is a lie, and a lot of you know it from personal experience. And the breakdown of the family combined with the transience of our career-based economy has created an entire generation that is chock full of lonely, alienated family-less people, many of them who make a ton of money, kill it at their career and go home to no meaning and no family. I forget that because I come from a healthy family, not a perfect one, but a healthy family, because I'm in a healthy family, because I live in community with other followers of Jesus from Bridgetown in my neighborhood, because I'm a part of a church, I have all of you to look forward to every Sunday. I forget my problem is too many in-depth relationships with wonderful people. I'm like, wow, another wonderful person I don't have capacity for or whatever it is. All these beautiful people to enjoy and experience. I forget that most people in our city have the exact opposite problem, little to no in-depth relationships, little to no safe place or welcome. We love, Tammy and I love that line. One of our favorite lines in all of the scripture that inspired us years ago toward adoption, um, toward community, toward welcoming people into our Bridgetown community that do not have family is that line in the Psalms about how God, quote, sets the solitary in families. That is what the Father does. He sets the solitary in families. Some of you were that solitary man or woman, and God put you in a family. Others of you, that's yet to happen. Stay with it. Others of you, you have a family. You're like, I'm 18 and single. Yeah, but you have a church family and you have this community. The impulse of the Father in you is not just to wall up and call it good and get your introvert on and we're done. Right? And I get that. The impulse of the Father, the Spirit of God in you is driving you to welcome in those that do not yet have family. That is the heart of the Father for all. All sorts of followers of Jesus, not just T and I, are recapturing this idea of church as family and of home in particular and church around a table as base camp for the kingdom of God and for love of neighbor. My friend John leads a church plant in Hell's Kitchen. He has a little book on church that he calls Sacred Roots. In it, he writes this, what would the church look like if we chose to buy homes in the same streets and subdivisions? the same buildings and blocks, the same suburbs and sections? What would our love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways, meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scripture studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given? What if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of communities? What if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world but havens to which the world comes for healing. I read Rosaria Butterfield over you last week. She's in our recommended reading. I love her vision. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality, there's that line, see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Do you see your home or apartment? You're like, room in my parents' basement, whatever. (laughs) Do you see it as yours? Or do you see it as a gift? It belongs to the Father. You're the steward, you're the, the trust fund baby that he entrusted with his real estate. His home, his table, his furniture, his budget, his salary, it's all his. His food in the pantry. it's all his. You are entrusted with the Father's wealth. Is your door locked or unlocked? Is your table open or closed? I would argue that there is no better place to begin. Some of you are new to this whole Jesus thing and kingdom in Portland as it is in heaven, and it's overwhelming. Where do I even start? It's very simple. Start. Here, start in your home, start around your table. Francis Schaeffer, who's one of the 20th century's premier intellectuals, wanted to create a place where people could come from all over Europe and the world and ask questions about the way of Jesus, but not only that, experience a community of Jesus in flesh and blood. So along with his wife, Edith, he founded Le Brie in Switzerland, which is the French word meaning shelter. And his libri homes have now spread all over the world. But as grand as his vision was, I love, he was coaching somebody about how to start. And he said this, don't start with the big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin, start personally and start in your home. I dare you, I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do what I am going to suggest begin by opening your home for community. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come share a home as long as it is a real home. I love that. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, right? I'm going to start laying that on thick anytime I really want you to do something. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. So good. Now, Next, I want to show you, all I really want to do tonight is get you to dream a little. Just um, enlarge the horizon of possibility for your future and for this practice. Um, I just want to show you what's possible if you were to recapture your home or apartment and your table as an outpost for hospitality. To that end, let me give you a brief history of hospitality. Give me two and a half minutes. That's all, all right? The etymology of our English word for hospital, hospice, hotel, hostel and others all come from the exact same root word, hospitality. There is a reason for that. In the ancient world, there were no hospitals, as far as we can tell, and there were most definitely no hotels, much less Airbnb or an app on your phone. Travel was slow and dangerous. There were inns, we read about one in the story, but they were actually quite rare and they were known to be quite dangerous. And especially around the first century in Jesus time there was a unique cultural moment where Rome really and to this day what Rome is known for is two innovations that no empire before it had ever done that really changed the course of Western civilization and human history one was its legal system that is still basically in play today and the other was its road system that is ironically still in play today its road system more than anything changed the world it made travel all over the Mediterranean possible for the first time ever. But still, there was no place to stay. All that to say, followers of Jesus in the first, second, and third century picked up on this emerging cultural moment and this acute need in society and stepped in to fill that void with hospitality. For example, Chrysostom, the bishop of Constantinople, had this charge to his church, early church father, quote, make for yourselves a guest chamber in your own house, set up a bed there, set up a table there and a candlestick you know, lamp from Ikea, whatever, have a room to which Christ may come. Say, this is Christ's room. This building is set apart for him. And he encouraged all of his church to go and work this into their home and into their life. Now, this practice, came to be called the Christ Room. As recently as last the last century, it was what inspired Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement to start their infamous houses of hospitality. The, all that to say, the early followers of Jesus for hundreds of years made hospitality and the expression of the Christ Room a high value, and word got out. Like, you would come to a new city, and you would just ask, where are the followers of Jesus to stay with? They were famous all over the empire for their hospitality. For example, in 362, Emperor Emperor Julian, who's not a follower of Jesus at all, writes this famous letter where he complains to his friend about the atheists, that's what they called Christians because they did not believe in the Greco-Roman pantheon but in the one true God, so they were called atheists. And he complains how their hospitality was winning over the entire empire. And he calls on his friend to get all of the Hellenistic priests to copy the Christians in the practice of hospitality in order to convert the empire back to paganism. As you know, it did not work. In 370, Basil, the bishop of Caesarea, there right on the coast of Israel, founded, as far as we can tell, the first hospital in response to a severe famine. And it was more than just for the sick. It was for the poor. It was for the traveler. It was kind of all in one place. his eulogy. They called this hospital a, quote, storehouse of piety. Not long after, both hospitality for the traveler and the hospital for the sick and other initiatives of social justice moved into the monastery, this new creative idea that was starting to pop up all over the known world. We think of monasteries kind of from later at the end of the Middle Ages where they devolved into this place to hide away from the big bad world. That was not at all the heart posture behind the monastic movement at the beginning. In the beginning monasteries were really more than anything outposts on the edge, the bleeding edge of the Roman Empire to expand the kingdom of God out past where it was Known to Ireland, to Scotland, to Spain, to all over the world. Entire towns grew up around these monasteries. And the monasteries are really the access point between, on one hand, social justice, hospitality, cultural renewal, innovation, um, technology. It was where you know the water wheel was invented, writing, it was where beer was invented. Lots of great things came out of the monastery. (laughs) Not just the rule of life, right? Beer. And all sorts of beautiful things. It was this center of cultural influence and this outpost. Of culture, and then on the other side, it was a place of the spiritual disciplines and prayer and fasting and life and community and quiet. It was this access point, this collision of two worlds. And the monastery was home for the hospital, for social justice, for feeding the hungry, for cultural renewal for over a thousand years. It was not until the 14th and 15th centuries that cities in Europe started to take over the running of hospitals, and far more recently that welfare and social justice became the responsibility of the federal government. All, and I'm not against that. I get why we need all of that. All I'm saying is that so many of the institutions that we have come to rely on for human flourishing, from the hospital to the hotel, all started in the homes and around the tables of followers of Jesus. A family, a table, bread, and wine, and is there somebody in need to our right or to our left? I say that for one very simple reason, to spark your imagination. Who knows what could come from your home, or your apartment, or your table, or your family, or your life? Imagine with me a city, a Portland, where every follower of Jesus is practicing radically ordinary hospitality. Imagine a Portland where every follower of Jesus is part of a community that is small enough to gather around a table, to live as family and then invite others into that family, to blur the lines between insider and outsider, follower of Jesus and not. Imagine a Portland where every follower of Jesus is living below their means in both money and in time in order to create space to welcome the lost to the table. Imagine a Portland where followers of Jesus are known for throwing the best parties in town where you don't have to get drunk to have a good time. Imagine if your home or your apartment or your condo was the de facto community center in your neighborhood or complex where you know your neighbors by name, where you know your neighbors' stories. Imagine if your family, if you have one, if you have a husband or wife or any children, if it was open and transparent for the watching world or at least your neighbors to see what fatherhood and motherhood what masculinity and femininity and family and the way of Jesus look like in flesh and in blood. Not perfect, but good. Imagine an apartment, a condo tower, a neighborhood, a street, where it can be said of you what was said of the church in Acts 2, quote, there were no needy persons among them. I get, I just want to speak to the cynic in the room, this sounds just like your standard Portland-esque progressive utopian pipe dream. And I am well aware that we live in the now and the not yet, and the full reality of this dream won't come to pass until the kingdom of God is all the way here. I get that a lot of people in our neighborhoods want nothing to do with us, don't want hospitality, don't want to set foot anywhere in your home or apartment, and yet our call as followers of Jesus is to move that kingdom forward, to live into it at the incline of our heart posture, one meal at a time. T and I, just to tell you a little bit of our story into this practice, I think we are, it's a bit ironic because we are a living example of both success and failure in this practice. We've been on the journey with hospitality for quite a few years now. My wife, her family of origin is Mexican, and it's very much like warm culture, if you know that sociological language. And I don't—I come from not warm culture, whatever—the oppo- the exact opposite. And I remember when we started dating, and she was still living at home at the time. We were really young, and I was like kind of enthralled by this whole. Like they were a living example of everything that we're teaching on with this practice. The door was like literally never locked, and they kind of did not live in a nice neighborhood. It was a bit worrisome, but um, it was beautiful. And that, but it was also annoying. Like we were dating and just random people would stop by the house pretty much every single day. I remember days when we'd like close the shades and like have to hide in another side room or whatever because we didn't want to get talking to some random person named Bob. Like, who are you again? Random people would just stop in for dinner. Her mom would always just put extra stuff on the pot for dinner. It was always an extra place set at the table. There was a guest room or a Christ room and people were always welcome to stay a night or two. Random people would get kind of de facto adopted into the family and stay for months at a time or a year or two. I mean, literally, there are people that were never officially adopted that came at 18, 19, 20, who her dad was in real estate. And when each of her kids got married, he let them assume the mortgage on one of his rental properties. And he started giving rental properties away to these other like de facto kids. I'm like, I don't even remember his name. And you're giving him a house? What's wrong with you? It was an amazing example of Haas. My family was nothing like that. I come from a great family, but just not warm culture at all. Home was like where you go after church to do homework, watch Walt Disney movies, and eat dinner or whatever, right? And uh, I have no memory of a neighbor in our home or anything. Like My parents are great, but that just was not on the value list for the Comer Um, family, and I'm really introverted, so that played really well with my personality. And somehow, when uh, when T and I said yes to marriage. I don't know how. I don't even know that it was intentional, but somehow my family of origin won out over hers, and we went straight into church planning, and just hospitality was not at all a part of our life until about 10 years ago. I had this moment. I still remember it like crazy where I was wrecked by the Holy Spirit. We um, inherited a home when we were really young, and we always wanted to live in the city. As you know, cost of living is crazy. So ever since we got married 17 years ago next week... um, that's right. So we've done, I think, four, over the 17 years, we've done four like massive remodel projects where we bought like old, dilapidated homes and over five or so years fixed them up and sold them. And we had finished, uh, it was our second one at the time, we'd finished this home, put it on the market, sold right away, and we were about to move. We were looking for our next spot. And I was driving home from work one day. I work at a church, just to clarify. And um, I had this moment as I was driving into my neighborhood when it hit me like a ton of bricks, not a single neighbor is going to miss me. Most of them I don't think even know my name because I have no clue what his name is or her name. I had not had a, truth be told, I had not had a single neighbor into my home, much less around my table. Other than the fact that, you know, we painted and re-landscaped the front yard and property values went up a scotch. Other than that, I don't think anybody would even give it a moment's thought that I was no longer a citizen of that neighborhood. And I was wrecked. And I realized, like, Jesus made it pretty simple. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Somehow I skipped that part. Like, I skipped right over my neighbor, I made it everybody, and in doing so, I lost who it actually was. So long story short, Tam and I are like, we're wrecked by the Spirit, we repent, and it was that for us, or at least for me, Tammy was already on the bandwagon. And so, all right, next, next house, we find this old dilapidated house. It's abandoned it's we're amazing. We're all excited about it. And we move into this new neighborhood in right on the edge of the city. And we're like, whole other heart posture. We move in, we get Matt and Anna Norman to move in across the street. We manipulate them into our intentional community. It's amazing. And we're like, again, I'm really introverted. I like am fine to not live in community, much less practice hospitality. So this is all new to me. We start to live in community with other people like really close to each other, do life together, eat together, drink together. We start to invite the neighborhood in. Our end goal is basically to function as the community center in our neighborhood. Every time there's a holiday, we throw a party. except that like, you're not even supposed to celebrate. Columbus Day, we're like, we know this is bad, but you wanna come over for barbecue? We'll like, (laughs) grieve injustice and talk about politics or whatever it is, right? any excuse we can just to invite people over for meals, or to throw a Christmas party. I think we have a picture of a, um, every 4th of July we would throw a block party. This was I think our last one before we moved. We got like the police to cordon off the edge of the whole thing and we ran a parade. We had like a hundred kids in this parade. It was insane on bicycles all up and down the streets. So many drunk people in front of my house. It was amazing, right? <laughs> We had face painting there off to the left. It was this amazing experience. By the end of our time there, like a bunch of the neighbors uh, jokingly called me the mayor. That was my nickname. Like to this day, Matt and Anna still live there. And they still have neighbors asked, like, how's the mayor? Have you seen him recently? And I'm quite well. Thank you very much. Mr. Introverted, me. And I just cannot tell you how many good conversations about the gospel of Jesus we had. All of them over a meal. At our table in the winter, in our backyard, or in our front yard in the summer, Matt had a Traeger and muscles, and he would pull that thing across the street, and all the neighbors would peek out as their barbecues tonight. yes, come, and we would practice radically ordinary hospitality. Now, fast forward, this is a bit of a long story, sorry, but four years ago, we moved again. It was our dream house. We had no desire to move, um, but when our family of churches disbanded, we really felt called by God to live within walking distance of this building and really just be rooted at Bridgetown, all in. And we really wanted to raise our family right in the heart of the city. We were kind of in the city, but out on the edges of it. We really wanted to live it out right here. So we sold our dream home, moved into the city, found another project to work on, and bought it. But then rented a house. This was going to take a while. It was a bit more of a project. Rented a house. It was. It was a 12-month lease, went on sabbatical, and we thought, you know what, I was really burned out. I was the most emotionally unhealthy I had ever been and we thought we had a great run in that neighborhood, but we're only here for a year, we're gone for a bunch of it on sabbatical, let's just take a year off hospitality. Let's just kind of take the foot off the gas, not because we're against it, we're all for it, and we'll restart when we move into our next house. Sounds like a great plan, at least at the time, it sounded like a great plan. Long story short, um, it was a classic real estate project, and what was supposed to be a year became two, then became three, then became four. We're still at the rental, by the way. And um, hopefully we move next month, so we're just about done. I say that because we missed it. We missed it again. The exact same thing that I swore that, well, I'm, I will never do that again. I did it again. Is that, anybody else ever do something like that before? Where you swear, I will never, I, from here on out, I'm a changed man. Except for this year, I'm just gonna take a year off this. I'm just the old man for this year, for the second, for the third, for the fourth. And so as we're getting ready to move right now and we're you know, throwing anything on Craigslist that needs to go and all of that is kinda our space right now, I just am learning a lesson right now that I never wanna forget. It's very simple. All you ever have, all I ever have is right here and right now. We do not live in the future. We should not live in the past. We live in the moment. There are so many excuses to put off the things in life that really matter, such as hospitality, the other things too. So many excuses. Well, I'm in school right now. Well, I just live in a dorm. Well, I'm in grad school. Well, it's only a 12-month lease and then we move. Yeah, right. Well, it's, we have little children. Yeah, for like 15 years, whatever. Like, there is always an excuse to come up with. And I get, there's no guilt there, no shame. I get that there are seasons to life and there are seasons to hospitality. I get that, right? But at the same time, all we ever have is here and now. So as we move in a few weeks or next month, We have our whole new rhythm all worked up. Tuesday night is community night. We host our community every week. Wednesday night is neighbor night, like open table. Anybody is welcome from the neighborhood, family, friends from the kids. Friday night is Sabbath dinner, where we open that up to our close friends and family. And that's our new rhythm. We want our home to become a safe place for the practice of hospitality, for the love of neighbor in our neighborhood, to create, to curate a safe place of welcome in the name and the spirit of the Father. Again, I tell you that story, and I'm sorry for how long it was, just for one very simple reason, to spark your imagination, to get you thinking, what if? Some of you are like, well, I'm not even there yet. Okay, what if? What do you have now? What's your loaf, your fish in your hands right now? What do you have? Well, it's not much. Take that. What do you have right here? Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Don't put off. You don't even need a plan. Just start right here. Start right now. Find a table somewhere. You don't have one? Find a rich friend or just go out to Proud Mary. Find a table. And start there. What if this summer you were to join my wife and I to begin a journey to recapture your home and your table as an outpost of neighbor love? Our practice for the coming week is all up at practicingtheway.org slash eating and drinking. We have two fun exercises for you. I think this is a really fun practice. Um, Exercise one is a block map. In the center, next slide, is your home. And then the four, I'm sorry, the eight blocks around it are your eight closest neighbors, okay? So think of your apartment, your condo, your street, whatever. Um, you're like, does bedrooms, I live at home count? Whatever. Um, your eight closest neighbors and you just go through. In line A, fill in their first and last name if you know it. And if you don't know the last name or any name at all, just put in a question mark. You'll be like, I don't even know who the creepy guy is across the, don't write creepy guy, just question mark, Okay. <laughs> Um, under line B, see if you can fill in any, a few facts that you can't get from just a wave across the street or the hallway. Such, um, really simple stuff. Works for Nike, moved here from Idaho into tennis, whatever it is. And then on line C, see if you can fill in any in-depth information, things that you could only know from a relationship or at least from a meal or two around a table. Dreams for the future. Marriage or singleness or family status, faith, or if they have any, pain, family of origin, any of that. The authors of The Art of of Neighboring have surveyed thousands of people, I think tens of thousands, over this. And they have come to the conclusion that only 10% can fill in the names of all eight neighbors. Only 3% of people can fill out line B for every home. And less than 1% can fill out line C for every home. And again, the point of that is not guilt and shame at all, it's to move you, to inspire you toward neighbor love, to get it in your mind, to get it in your imagination, hopefully to get it through your heart and into your neighborhood. The second exercise is another fun one. Just sit down, whiteboard it out. If you wanna do it all monastic, silence and solitude, that's my style. Or if you wanna like throw a party, open a bottle of wine and do this with your community, great. Just brainstorm a list of creative ideas for how to love your neighbor and create a safe place in your neighborhood. Here's a, a short list to get you started that myself and a few of the leaders came up with in like two minutes. Um, meet your neighbors. That's a great place to start. If you don't actually, I don't actually know any of my neighbors. Well, you know where to start this week. Um, invite the eight closest neighbors to you over. Say, set a time limit. The next three months, or between now and the end of summer, invite your eight closest neighbors over. Throw a block party. Fourth of July is coming. You missed May the 4th, but you can plan ahead for next year. Um, redo your budget or your schedule. Sit down with an Excel. Some of you are like, wait, a budget? That's a whole other teaching if you don't have one of those. Um, but redo your budget or your schedule to make room for hospitality. Set up a Christ room. If you have a house or you have space, Like, set up a Christ room. Tammy and I don't have like an official guest room. Our house isn't big enough for that, but we just Ordered a Murphy bed, like to create place. Anytime anybody is in town, uh, not anybody. Don't like pass that word out. But um, <laughs> prayer walk your neighborhood. Just walk around your neighborhood or your apartment. Just ask. Jesus for his eyes for your neighborhood and for your neighbors through holiday parties like ho- every single holiday You should be thinking how do I throw a party in my neighborhood or in my apartment complex and just invite people over host a neighbor night That's a great thing Especially in summer when Portlanders come out of hibernation for three months, right? Just say hey every Friday night We're barbecuing out in the front lawn or every Wednesday night. We're at the community room We're you know doing potluck whatever it is Sunday bring back Sunday or Sabbath dinner So a generation or two before for us, it was normal where if you had a family, and particularly if you had a home, you would have people over for Sunday dinner. After church on Sunday morning, you'd have people over. We used to do this. It was like a roast. It was the worst food ever. A roast? What a, like meat's bad enough, and then you make it soggy with carrots? Oh, so bad. I'm sorry, those of you from the Midwest. That is just not okay. Right? But whatever, bring back Sabbath dinner. Just not all of, you know, Sunday dinner or Sabbath dinner. This is Tammy and I's new practice. We just open up our home and only to close friends and family because we're tired on Sabbath. But open table. Um, Just repurpose your ordinary life. So you're into sports? Invite your neighbors over for football's Monday nights, right? Yes? See what I know? I'm so in the know. You're into reading? Start a book club. You're into cooking, supper club, so on and so forth. Create a hangout space, particularly if you have children or teenagers or college students in your home. Make your house the gathering point for all of your kids, friends, and family. I used to have a friend, um, actually I I had a massive crush on her daughter, and I was trying to get up the gumption to ask her daughter out, but before I could, my best friend invited her out, and then they fell in love and got married, is a tragic story. Um, <laughs> but her mom, my potential mother-in-law that never was, um, praise God because I love my wife and I love my mother in law if you're listening, Penny, love you, um, uh, she had this whole pantry with all these little Tupperwares, with like little, she was very organized, it was awesome. Little label gun with the names of all of her friends, um, or her daughter's friends, and my name was on there. They had little like, this is the favorite snacks for John Mark, the favorite snacks for Mike. How awesome is that? (laughs) Practice reverse hospitality, which is where you bring food to people. When a baby is born, when somebody is sick or out of work, Taco Tuesday, bring it back. It's a thing, remember that from the 90s? It's a thing, Taco Tuesday. Like, laugh all you want. The point of that, start your own list, Get out your own whiteboard, your own whatever, Evernote. The point is just to get you thinking and dreaming for how to join Jesus in neighbor love over the next few months and in the life to come. And the key thing here is just to turn hospitality into a way of life. Not just an event on a calendar, nothing wrong with that. Not just a line item in a budget, but a way of life, a practice that flows out of your life from the heart of God himself. And to live this way, not out of duty, not out of some religious guilt trip or obligation or responsibility or it's the right thing to do, it is the right thing to do, but to live this way out of gratitude, genuine gratitude for the Father's generous welcome of you. As Jesus said, freely you have received, now freely what? give. Pass that warm welcome along. As Paul said in Romans, welcome others as God in Christ has welcomed you. That right there is hospitality in a line. To end, the main thing this will cost you and me is not money. You can do this on the cheap. You're like, oh, beans and rice is still a thing in the Comber family. Our kids love it. The main thing this will cost you is time. The refrain that I hear all the time from people in our church the excuses for, for any of the practices of Jesus, and especially this one, is, oh, it sounds great, I'm just too busy. I just don't have the time. That's true for most. Most of you are too busy to do this. Most of you just are too busy. You do not have time for this. But the reality is that a lot of us are too busy with trivial things. The average American, average, watches five hours of TV a night and is on their phone for two and a half hours a day. Whoa, speaking of the (laughs) devil. (laughs) Satan is calling with an update on your Netflix queue. I just heard I was just reading this thing a few days ago. I just heard the phrase for the, apparently it's a thing, uh, called the show hole for the feeling that you get after you binge watch something on Netflix and then it's over and you have nothing else to fill your life up with meaning anymore and you're sad. Show hole, that's insane. The average Netflix is watched over a period of three to four days, the entire series. Now what has the world come to? All that to say, the practice of hospitality will force you and force me to take a long, hard look at our priorities. And you want to know what you actually value? Look at how you spend your time and your money. You're like, I don't have any money. Look at how you spend your time. (laughs) Well, I don't have any time. Yes, you do. You have the same amount of time as me. We all have the same, absolute equality. Nobody has more or less than 24 hours in a day. What do you have? How do you spend it? That's what your values actually are. Please, all that to say, please hear me. Listen, I'm done here. Just listen. Last thing. I am not calling you to do more this summer. I'm not calling you to add anything onto your already over-busy, stressed-out life where you just feel low-grade anxiety all the time. Not. I'm calling you to do less. I'm calling you, and I think Jesus is calling me, to slow down to eradicate out the trivia, to cut out the stuff that does not matter at all in light of eternity. Who cares about that stupid show? It doesn't matter. And to unhurry your life in order to create space to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love and hurry are incompatible. They do not go together. Love takes time. Love for God and love for neighbor both take copious amounts of time and time is the one thing that people in a hurry do not have. So this coming summer, slow down, unhurry your life for love and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.